0: Well, good morning, I'm not the regular, Pastor Kevin is, is actually taking a trip, they're, they're leaving this morning to go to Florida, so pray for safe travels there, just a time of rest and relaxation, so I'm actually going to open us up in a word of prayer myself, so Lord we just come before you, thank you for a time to gather, thank you for a time to praise your name, thank you for a time to reflect on how awesome you are and what you've given to us in your word and your spirit. We pray this morning that you will use your word to teach us and guide us. And Lord, may you use me and and however you can. I know I'm a flawed individual, but through your spirit and your power, you can speak. And may you use, more importantly, your word and your spirit in the hearts and the minds of the hearer, Lord, because you are the master teacher. And we call upon you to teach us and guide us this morning as we open your word. May you bless this time, we pray in Jesus' great name, amen. So, we live in an ever-changing world, a world that, you know, every year you get new things coming out, old things go away, new techniques, new doctor practice, oh, we don't think this is good for you this year, now we got to change and change our diets over here. It's always changing. Man, the world of man constantly changes. Uh, and we've lived through a particularly uh, troubling year, over the, if you look back in our country, we've had riots, we've had instability. We've had viruses. We've had this growing divide in this country. Uh, And when we look outside our doors and we look even deeper, we see a deeply rooted problem that that I sort of look at and I say, I see a lot of darkened minds and a lot of increasing darkness coming. Um, It's a situation where many have rejected their creator God, And in doing so, live with increasingly darkened hearts and minds. To the point that our culture at this day and age struggles to even acknowledge the most basic realities of male and female. Uh, And men and women leaving at times their natural function and choosing the unnatural. And you stop by and say, how in the world? Do you get to this level? How do you get here? And, you know, fundamentally, you look at this and say, well, the responsibility falls to man. We are responsible for our thoughts and our actions, our attitudes, our beliefs, our decisions, what we do with what the Lord has revealed to us. And for those that suppress the truth about God and they opt for speculations and lies... The result, the Bible says, is God's wrath giving them over to a darkened mind. I know this is true because I can read it. I can read it in Romans chapter 1. It says it exceedingly clear. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Just pause a second here. you got to get this. His invisible attributes, his divine power and his nature has been clearly seen the word there in Greek is one that, it's a word as if you're up at a high altitude and you're able to see everything with great clarity. Like in an airplane, taken off and you can look down and see Springfield. Oh, I see all the road systems. Now I get the whole picture. It's not the best road system, but I can now see it. <laughs> but you, you get this aerial view. You, they, he's saying, I've made my invisible attributes seen and witnessed through what I have made. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They looked out at what had been made, and even though God's fingerprints were all over them, and his attributes clearly seen and evident, they decided rather to speculate. We can speculate and come up with a better answer for the the things around us. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So here's God's first action step in his wrath, giving them over. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over a second time now to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their heir. Here's God's second action. Again, it's handing them over, giving them over. In this case, it's degrading passions. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over now a third time to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. My friends, this is a picture of man suppressing the truth, rejecting God's clear revelation in his creation, speculating and hypothesizing. On a different origin and buying into what we see here in verse 25 is what Paul calls the lie. There's an article in front of that lie in 25, the lie. We'll look at that in a second. But as a result, what does God do? Did you read about hellfire and brimstone coming down? No, it's him just giving them over, giving them over and giving them over allowing them to walk down a darkened road. I believe what we see outside of our doors in 2021 is a living example of this exact passage that we just read. Almost to a T, we see the things happening around us that we just described in Romans. Man's highly acclaimed, masterful speculation about the origin of the species slowly has become the de facto belief in our modern world schools and universities teach it to kids of all ages and by the way if you're a church or or a state or an individual that wants to teach about intelligent design you're made into a mockery and you're berated as some fool that you would even dare think about the foolishness of intelligent design and you say why is this the case because mankind has bought in to the lie. They've gone down a road that rejects God and instead worships and idolizes the created things, thinking that we'll find the answers to life by idolizing the things that are inside this box of the physical universe. And my friends, philosophies and speculations about this world and our existence, they have consequences, dire consequences. When we suppress the truth and opt for the lie, darkness and depravity await. As man's ungodliness and unrighteousness pour forth, God will respond, it says, by handing them over. But I want to turn our attention today to what Paul calls the lie. Verse 25, if you caught it. For they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, or those things created rather than the creator. I want us to consider today who is behind this lie. And since we live in a culture that I believe is headlong down this path, how do we combat or contend in this day and age? Now, Isaiah 44 paints a picture of a man. If you've never read this, go home and read it this afternoon. Paints a picture of a man who takes some of the created things around him. In this case, it happens to be wood. He takes a piece of the created wood that God has made, and he works diligently with it with his tools. And he forms out of it first a table that he can sit down and eat at. And he enjoys a nice dinner there at that wood table he's made. The second thing he does with this created wood, he finds some more created wood, and he says... I'm going to take this wood, and I'm now going to build a fire out of it. And I'm going to use it for warmth because I'm getting sort of cold. Built the hunger situation, built myself a table. Now I'm cold, so I need heat. I'm going to burn the wood. And then he unfortunately does a third thing with this created wood. He begins carving into the wood, and before you know it, he's created some likeness or image of something that he thinks, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. This is, and, and before you know it, he begins to idolize this same species of wood, this created element of wood. And he, and he, before you know it, he's turned all of his attention and, and he looks to this as almost as if it's a salvation to him. And you may be saying, well, we don't do this kind of thing now. We don't build little trinkets and things in our homes, but I'm here to tell you that we very much so idolize Mother Earth and we very much so turn and idolize the study of Mother Earth, hoping that we'll find the answers to life right here. Science is going to figure it all out out with the human genome. We'll map it all out and we'll never die because we'll fix all the genetic code problems. That's how we do it today versus the man in Isaiah 44. But we begin to idolize and seek answers from this Mother Earth. And unfortunately, Isaiah says, he feeds on ashes a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Here we see a problem, right? A deceived heart, a mind that has fallen to deception, wherein he's totally trapped, it says, because Isaiah says he can't even deliver himself out of this trap. And not only that, he quotes the man. The man has this wood in his hand, and he's or this thing in his hand, and he doesn't realize Is there not a lie in my right hand? He can't see that what he's grabbed onto is actually a lie. He thinks it to be true. Now, Jesus tells us that there is a father of lies, and one whom Revelation 12 says he deceives the whole world. Jesus said in John 8, speaking of Satan, he said he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's the origin point of lies. This is the one who is ultimately behind much of the lie that mankind has bought into outside our doors. And we know in 2 John 1.7, it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Perhaps some of you look out today and you read the stories and you read the news and you say, man, it's as if I'm seeing the spirit of antichrist gaining and raising in this culture around us. And I think we are. And it's key to say and and recognize that we do not want to be fooled because his lies will be difficult at times to detect. Any good lie is difficult to detect. We're told in 2 Corinthians 11 that he disguises himself as an angel of light. Light in the scriptures is synonymous or shown to be like as if truth, right? So you'll think and you'll look and it sounds true, but underneath it's a wolf and a liar. Have you ever played the game of two truths and a lie? It's an interesting game. You, know, you get a group of people together and you say, okay, each person in the group thinks of two truths about themselves and one lie. And then you write it down and then you, you know, give it to someone who's going to read them and then they're either read or you mention it before the group, and then they have to, the rest of the group has to try to figure out which of the things is the lie. Um, and it, it's, it's funny because you, you actually find that in order to be good at this game, you got to sort of know how to lie, unfortunately. And to do a good lie, it better sound a lot like the truth. If it's totally obvious that, oh yeah, I know those, those two are true, that's clearly not true. It's, you're not going to be any good at the game, right? And actually, the better you get at it, and I'm, I'm not very good at it, but the better you get at it, you actually want the lie to have little bits of truth in it. So that they'll say, well, I know, if that's Joel, and I know he went to the University of Kansas, and so maybe you'll mention the University of Kansas in the lie. So <laughs> it sounds true, and then, but then you drop the lie part, right? And that's a masterful thing that I think the evil one does at times, is use a little bit of truth mixed with a lie in there. Um, and, you know, when we, we had actually a staff meeting, or a staff party, I should say, back over the holidays, and we played this game. Two truths and a lie. Say, are the church staff playing in a game about lies? Well, yeah, we actually did. So, anyway, it was it was all in good fun. But one thing that I found that was funny is there were some of us that weren't very good at lying because you'd start to read these things, you're like, I know exactly who that is, and I know exactly which one is the lie. Uh, and you know, you'd say it's actually good that we're not good at lying, right? Because in 4:25 of Ephesians. Paul says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, direct translation is the lie again, same wording as Romans 1.25, laying aside the lie, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. And then two verses later, he gives us a little glimpse into something, he says, do not give the devil an opportunity. As if there's a, the devil's constantly looking and ready to pounce, as Peter says, like a lion ready to devour if we give him an opportunity. The question becomes, how do you defend against this situation? We see it outside our doors. We see it with the evil one's work. We can read about things in the scriptures about what he's, this evil one's done, how he's pulled the wool over other people's eyes in the past. How do you combat that situation? Now, what if I could give you the six key ingredients, or the six key steps. We all love self-help books that boil it down to the five steps of uh, freedom, or whatever, you, whatever it happens to be the five steps of design, electrical engineering. Whatever it happens, whatever the subject matter is, we love books that boil it down into the five or six or seven key steps or ingredients. And then we really love it if it makes it memorable, right? Something that we, maybe an acronym or an acrostic or something cool. And all of a sudden, I remember what that guy said, this cool little thing. And you have this way to remember it. What if I could tell you that I can give you those things from the Bible? I can give you six key ingredients. And I can even give you a way to memorize it and know it. And it's not just from me. It's actually written in the the Bible. You'd say, well, you know, the Bible isn't that... You don't see Paul stop that often and say, the six key steps for spiritual growth are these, one, two. He doesn't do that. But in this case that we're about to read, he does something very similar. He's going to give us six key things. And if you want to know how to combat the mastermind behind the lies that are outside our doors... I'd say you turn and remember this guy on the screen, a guy that my son drew. <laughs> my son, Alex, I had him draw this for me. I said, Alex, you like to draw strong guys. And I said, I want you to draw a strong guy. And this guy, I want you to make sure that you, you've, you know, look at the Gladiator or something and draw him like that. And so, you know, Alex, when he draws, he always has to include the six-pack. That's an, a key ingredient of all, of all strong guys. You've got to have the six-pack. But what I want us to look at today is notice what this guy's wearing, and we're going to walk through this, because this is what Paul chose to give us, to look at, to say, I've, I have a way to teach these folks the six key ingredients of how to combat the situation that they will face. And I even have a way for them to remember it, a clear way for them to remember it. So as Paul, if you, you know, I, by the way, I thought about putting Russell Crowe up here, you know, from Gladiator. But then I thought, you know, I actually like this guy better than Russell Crowe. <laughs> so anyway, um, you, you know, as Paul is working through this book and letter in Ephesians, you know, he calls them to lay aside a number of things and the in the mind of the Gentiles it turning away from that he says and he says to lay aside the lie in verse 425 and then he says lay aside the lust of deceit in 422 he says lay aside the bitterness and malice in Ephesians 431 put aside the futility of mind in Ephesians 417 put aside the stealing amongst yourselves in Ephesians 428 And then he's building up and he gets down by the end of this book and he gets to a root. He's like, okay, if you're going to do all these things, you got to know you're going to face a battle. And you are going to need extraordinary strength and armament to fight and contend in this battle. And so he gets to Ephesians 6.10 and he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. To stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. And he begins to present the armor. But Paul gives you and I a call here at the beginning to be strong in the Lord. It's key here to see that in the Greek, that verb, be strong, one Greek word. And it's in the passive voice. You'd say, well, what is that? Well, active voice means the subject in the verb is is taking action. Passive voice means that the subject in the verb is being acted upon. So in this case, it is in passive voice, meaning the subject here, which is you and I, is being acted on. In other words, we allow God to endue us with strength. This is not a fight that you can win upon your own strength. And verse 10 is a verse of incredible power. Because Paul uses three Greek synonyms for strength. The first one with the be strong is in which means to be strong, endued with strength. Then he talks about God's strength, which is kratos or kratos, which is force, strength, and power. And then he talks about his might, iskus, which is ability, force, strength, and might. All of these three are directed towards God as the power source. And so Paul starts right off the bat here when he's talking about this battle, making it exceedingly clear the power source will come from none other than God, and you must put yourself in a position to allow him to daily and regularly strengthen you. And if we trace the origins of this armor that Paul is talking about, I believe it goes further back than just the guard that happens to be walking by his jail cell when he writes this. If you recall, he wrote Ephesians when he was in jail in Rome. And no doubt, he saw the guard, and that probably did spur via the Holy Spirit that I'm going to use that as this metaphor. But then it went deeper than that, because Paul begins to hearken back to the Old Testament. And we'll find out that there's a deeper root than just the, the Roman armor, because we find out that there's going to come from Jesse. One will stem from Jesse, it says. And he th- listen to what he will wear. This is talking about Jesus, 11.5 of Isaiah. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And in Isaiah 59.17, again speaking of the Lord, he put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. There's a reason why this is called the armor of God, because when we take it up, we're taking up the very armor that our Lord wears when going to battle. I don't know about you, but that gets me sort of excited to know that this is his armor, and he says, I can take up that same type of armor. And before getting into the armor, Paul wants to make it clear who we are fighting against and what our position should be. Verse 11 states that we're defending, right? We're defending against the schemes of the devil. This word "methodia," which is the cunning arts, the deceitfulness, the craft, and the trickery of the devil. Same word where we get the English word method. And verse 12 makes it clear that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But it's against the spiritual forces of darkness. He actually uses four pretty powerful terms talking about these spiritual forces that we, that we want to hold firm against. And they are invisible. How is it that you fight and battle and defend against an invisible foe? These are the, this is the passage, right? Th- these are the invisible forces that work around us and get the world around us to buy into the lie. And what is our position that Paul says that we should be taking? He says, stand firm. Three times he says it, verse 11, verse 13, verse 14. A firm and fixed position, holding our ground. It's interesting to me that out of the six pieces of armor, only one of them is offensive. Five are predominantly defensive and protective in nature. And the position that Paul calls us in is not one of being out actively attacking and slashing. It's one of standing firm. You hold your ground against this one. You slash and go out and just try to fight it yourself. You're probably swinging at air as this invisible foe quickly is able to retreat. But in this case, stand firm when you're in this sort of battle. He goes on. This is where I love where it gets good. He starts detailing the armory, Ephesians 6.14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. This, my friends, is where it gets awesome. It gets so good. Because he uses this Roman metaphor of the panoplia, which is the, the, the whole comprehensive set of armor. And he directs us as God being the true source of this armament and the power behind it. Did you ever want to see God go out in battle? This is what he's wearing. And we can put it on too. And you, first you start out with the belt of truth. And it's critical to understand one thing here about this illustration with the metaphor of the panoplia from Roman armament, is that this was this comprehensive set of armor. Um, one could not just put this on haphazardly. This isn't just something you throw on and out the door you go. they had actually typically sort of lay it out and they would even sometimes have another individual there to help make sure they get it on because it got a little difficult as you're getting all this stuff put on. But it all started, with the first element which was the belt in the midsection reason being is that you have this undergarment on that you didn't want to get tied up in or trip over and so they'd start by making sure things are well tied in the midsection it also helps support the breastplate the breastplate you know supported at the shoulders as you can see in Alex's little drawing but it also had to be supported at the bottom so it wouldn't just flop around the belt would, would hold that, that that breastplate in place so Paul presents these in the very order that they would have put them on in that Roman culture. And I think that the ingredients are also presented. The key spiritual ingredients are presented in that order. And in this case, the first one is truth. This is the foundational element for all believers. Without truth, we have no foundation in reality if you were to to define what is truth, as Pilate asked Jesus, I would say that which matches reality. And we know that Jesus came. He says in 1837 as he spoke to Pilate, for this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to seek and save the lost, to set the captive free, to teach about my father, those are all true, right? But notice what he says here. His overarching, foundational reason he came is to testify to the truth. Those other things are true, so I'm going to tell you about them. I did come to save the lost. That's true. I did come to tell you about my father. That's true. And it all points back to his purpose and mission was to give us truth as he is the way, the truth, and the life. The question becomes, do we believe and hold to the truth that he's given to us. He's given us his word. And the Bible says he's given us his spirit, which, by the way, is called the spirit of truth. Multiple times we see that title for the spirit. Do we set our minds on this as we're called to do so? My friends, in a world full of lies, our first and foundational defensive measure that holds the other elements in this armament in place is the very truth that God has given us. And be forewarned, there are many so-called truth claims in the world today, yet there's only one authenticated and verified source. So you should ask yourself the question, where am I getting my truth from? From the news? Nothing wrong with the news, but is that your ultimate truth source? I hope not. I hope we're turning to the Bible and God's word. Right? He goes on. The breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was meant to protect that vital chest region and heart area where you've got. I mean, you take a blow there, you go down pretty rapidly. In this case, he says the key ingredient here, the second key ingredient, is righteousness. Is the breastplate. Which is held in place by this belt of truth. Very common, by the way, in scripture, to find righteousness and truth closely tied together as you read it. Uh, they're many times presented in, in those pairs. What is righteousness? I would say living rightly, doing right, uh, you know, being acceptable to God. How do you know what's right and wrong if you don't have the truth? to show you these things, and the spirit of truth to guide you into them. So we want to live rightly. And here's another thing with this particular ingredient. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, the Bible says God has declared you as being righteous. Romans 4, 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. The question becomes Do you believe that statement? Do you really believe that you've been credited as righteous before God the Father? And a second question is Do you live in a righteous manner? You know, the evil one's called the accuser of the brethren, right? He loves to hammer us with doubts about our righteousness and our righteous standing. Ah, Joel. You see, you just blew it yet again. You really think you're right? You're a loser. You are a loser. Give it up now. Throw in the towel and call it over. He, he, that's what he's at. He will continue to pound on us on this. When we walk by the Spirit, we walk in righteousness. The deeds of our flesh are put to death, the Bible says in Galatians 5.16. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. We need to live righteously. We need to know and stand firm in that we've been credited righteousness before God the Father. And that brings us to the next incredible ingredient, which is the gospel of peace on our feet. Now, Roman military footwear would have been heavily designed for, for, for good and sure footing. No, Not much different than what we would give an army soldier today. We take care to get good footwork and and good, you know, boots and, and things for our military to wear because we know that when they're out on the battleground, they will need sure footing. And in this case, the key spiritual ingredient that Paul highlights is the gospel of peace. Now, gospel is a word that means good news or glad tidings. And in the context of this verse, we see that it's called the good news of Peace. Clearly, we know that the gospel is the good news regarding Christ and his redemptive work for us. But here, Paul wants to highlight the peace, the peace that this good news entails. The the sure footing for the believer is the the good news that we have peace with God the Father, which in turn, I hope, brings peace into our souls, right? We know in Romans 5.1 that, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember Romans 5, that prior to Christ's work, the Bible says we were enemies with God. But if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have been reconciled to God the Father. And now you are no longer walking as an enemy with God. You are at peace with your Creator the question becomes again, do you really believe this? Do you believe what Paul says? This is You are at peace with God the Father, the Creator, the one that's perfectly holy, the one that's perfectly just. Are you at peace with him? Do you walk in this peace? That's the picture here of the boots or shotting our feet with the gospel of peace. He goes on and gets a, a big one here, the shield of faith. The shield is one of the outer layers, right, of defensive measures. In a sense, it it forms the first line of defense when the arrows and the missiles are coming in. Now, the imagery here uh, is a little different than Alex's little sort of round shield, which is more of a battling shield. The the Romans, if you've seen the movie Gladiator, you'll remember at the beginning, they have a big battle, and they have lines of, of, of soldiers and at the very beginning, they're getting down, and this is very much the picture here, I believe, with a Roman shield, typically two feet by four feet of, of reinforced material, and they would crouch behind that. And they would sometimes even get a line of, of men such that they could, they could have one here and another one up over them, so they're sort of interleaving their shields. And the reality is, this provo- provided incredible protection. In fact, one historian, recorded that a Roman soldier came out of battle and his shield had over 250 arrows embedded into it. That's the picture why Paul pauses and says, this is the shield that will block the enemy's missiles that he will shoot at you and the arrows that he tries to pierce you with. And in this case, we see that this shield is pointing, the key spiritual ingredient is faith, right? What is faith? How can faith be this outer wall that blocks Satan's arrows? We know the definition from Hebrews 11.1, right? That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. And this is a tricky one here, but follow me on this. The Greek word for faith is the noun form of the verb translated to believe or belief. So they're very close The verb to believe and the noun to have faith are are almost the same. They're slightly different. But the point is, is that there's much so a tie between belief and faith. And in scripture, man is repeatedly called, the responsibility of man, we are called to believe in the truth that the Lord has revealed to us about his son, and his death on the cross and his resurrection, we are called to believe. Just like when, when, he talk, when Paul talked to the jailer and he said, the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Or go run around a bush seven times and do this little hocus pocus. No, no. It's believe upon the Lord and you shall be saved. And we find in Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Do you believe that you are justified before God the Father? And do you live with a firm conviction about your unseen God? You know, having a firm faith and a firm conviction and a firm assurance of things hoped for puts the Christian in a position wherein the evil one's arrows, they simply bounce off. They can't penetrate that that kind of faith. Have you ever read the story of Habakkuk in the Old Testament? This one I like to bring up here when talking about faith because it's a fascinating little Old Testament minor prophet. And you'll read, and, and very much so you'll say, man, it sounds a lot like you could bring this to today. Because Habakkuk was a guy that looked outside his doors and he saw evil increasing and righteousness seemed to be decreasing. He saw the bad guy winning the good guy's getting sort of squashed and laughed at and mocked and beaten. And he said, There's no justice. There's no justice in the world. Where is, where is my God? And so the second chapter, he goes in and he has a complaint. Remember, he complains against God. He said, God, what in the world is going on? You need to deal with this. And do you remember what God said to him? This is where he gets gets down to the brass tacks of this situation with Habakkuk and good and evil. As God says, you know, Habakkuk, if that bothered you, I'm going to do something that's really going to bother you. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, the guys that are are evil guys. And and Habakkuk's going to be, what? You're going to, in response to my question about evil gaining and righteousness decreasing, you're going to tell me you're going to raise up the bad guy? And God says, yes, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to bring the bad guy here and they're going to administer my judgment right here in Israel. And then, oh, by the way, Habakkuk, the guys you're so worried about, the Chaldeans, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to hold them responsible for what they're doing and what they've done and all the atrocities that they've done. And then finally Habakkuk can then rest at the end, right? Because now he's gotten this picture and he said, oh, I get it. I can have faith, I can believe in my unseen God that he's still on the throne, that he still has a plan, that he still will work all this out, that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. I can believe that and have faith in this unseen God. And I can trust it. And even though the barns aren't full and the cows aren't, covered, they're, they're not producing and the, the crops aren't producing, there's no figs and the, the vine isn't producing, I can still rejoice in the God of my salvation because I know who he is. And I'm firm in my belief of who he is and that he will make it right. I'm getting a little too excited on that one. But anyway, the shield of faith. Faith is a key bulwark to, to stop the evil one's schemes. It goes on, he goes on to the fifth element, the helmet of salvation. The helmet protects one's head, right? Their mind, the central nervous system, sort of the processing engine, the place of our intellect. This is a key area to protect, right, in a battle. And here we're we're told that the ingredient, the, the key fifth spiritual ingredient is salvation. For those that believe in Jesus Christ, That God has saved us, it says. The reality of our salvation, both past sins, present issues, and future issues. That The fact that he saved us and paid the price. It's absolutely critical that we know and believe and stand firm in our salvation. Psalm 37, 39 says, But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of. Of trouble. Do you believe that he truly saved you? Do you believe that this salvation. Covers all of your sins. Or do you still need to work out some of them. Work out those, some of those sins. You got to work your way out. To please God out of the sin. Do you believe this statement. Having cancelled out the certificate of debt. Consisting of decrees against us. Which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The fact that God has saved us from the penalty of sin. The fact that God is there to save us in times of trouble. The fact that God is a God who saves. That surely should be a protection to our minds if we really believe this stuff we could stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. When they were asked to bow down to, the, to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar's you know, statue, they said in 317 of Daniel, our God whom we serve, get this, is able to deliver us. He's able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us and save us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image. That's standing firm in the salvation of the Lord. And do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar peered in and saw when he looked into that burning fire? He looked in and he said, I see a fourth. Didn't we just throw three? I see a fourth. And the one looks like the son of God. Because it was. I believe. And out they came without even the the, the slight smell of fire or smoke. And remember what Nebuchadnezzar recognized right then and there? There is no other God who is able to deliver or save in this way. And my friends, our God, Yahweh, is a God of salvation. And he's the only way to be saved from the problems that face this earth. And then he gets to the sixth final incredible ingredient. Thus far, as I mentioned earlier, every ingredient has been defensive, but not this one. You want to know what to use to counter the ruler of the world's schemes? The sword of the Spirit. It's not going to be guns. It's not going to be riots. It's not going to be the things that you would think. It's taking up the sword of the spirit, the active and living word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the very heart of a person. The question becomes, that's a little bit of a broken record here, Do you believe this? I say that I'm a broken record, but here's the reality. You have to know and believe these things. That's the key way to take up the armor. How good is a sword when you don't trust its metalwork? How good is a sword if you've never picked it up? It's too heavy for me, like David when he went out to fight Goliath. How good is that element How good is a shield of faith if you constantly doubt and never live with a firm conviction? How good is your breastplate of righteousness or your boots of peace when you doubt your standing, ignore the spirit and walk in the flesh and live as if you're at enmity with God the Father? How good is your helmet of salvation if you don't think that he paid for all of it? That you still have to work it out. You got to work to earn his favor. How good will that helmet of salvation be? To put these ingredients on, you must believe and know these things as true. You'd say, well, how do you wield this particular awesome, incredible sword? The very sword of God. He used it. There's no better example than Matthew 4. I love the example of Matthew 4. If you haven't read it, go read it today. The Spirit will will enlighten you some way, shape, or form with Matthew 4. I love telling the story with the kids. Jesus, in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted. Or 40 days, you know, going through dehydration, everything. Then he faces the evil one, right? Tempted by the evil one. There he is, face to face. Nose to nose with the enemy. And what does he pull out? The sword. Every time that the evil one levels a statement, what does Jesus draw out? I love to do it with the kids. He pulls out, shh, and he, and he cuts it down. Satan goes back to Psalm 91 and says, You know, if he, he says it, you will not stumble, you will not fall. You know, he'll give you his angels charge concerning you. Why don't you test that out? And he said, but it also says, and he pulls out the sword, and he slices through that argument, but he says, it also says, you shall not test the Lord your God. And he does that by using the sword of the Spirit. You know, Alex loves Star Wars. And in Star Wars, you got the Jedi, right? You got the Jedi, and they got their cool lightsabers. And that is their offensive weapon right and the cool thing is is that not only is it offensive but it's also very defensive as well they'll be getting shot by all these phasers you know and they're sitting I mean, there they're able to like do this superhuman movement of the lightsaber and deflect all the photon little you know whatever they're gonna call them but the beams that are coming they're, they're able to dodge hit them all knocked down and, and cut down with, the, with their sword. And, I, you know, when you see Jesus in Matthew 4, it's as if he pulls that sword out and just cuts through the arguments of the world and of the devil, like just cutting through butter, and it's just an incredible thing to see the power of the sword of the Spirit. Now, we can get stirred up like I just did over a lot of thing, over a lot of things in this world. We see a lot of fighting. We see a lot of people protesting. Riots going on. A lot of injustice. Increase in lawlessness. Which, by the way, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, that will mark some of the end times. Lawlessness will increase and love will grow cold. And we've just read a section of Scripture that says to resist the evil one's schemes, what do we do? We employ an impenetrable, defensive stand in which we're called to remain planted firm in the truth and righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation. And when arguments come, we cut through them with the great sword of the Spirit. And by the way, there are a lot of things that you can read in in Christendom, but there's nothing like the Word of God. It is more valuable. It is the key ingredient, right? You can study all kinds of things. You can read all kinds of words of man. But there is nothing, mark my words, there's nothing more powerful than the great sword of the Spirit. And so that is the key last ingredient that he gives. And when we struggle, and there are times, you know, we struggle with the evil one, as we just read, Then there are times we struggle with mankind. Even in the church, we see passages on this. And there is something in that case that the Bible says is worth contending for. Do you know what it is? The Bible says, contend for the faith. In Jude 1.3, I felt it necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints, the faith, with the article in front of it, the body of doctrine, of truth that we hold on to, that's been given to us. That, he says, is what we contend for in the church. We stand firm against the evil one, and we contend for the faith and the doctrine within the church. Now, when Jesus walked the earth, did you see him on the streets fighting and contending with the Roman government on all their injustices? No, but he did make great effort to diligently testify to the doctrinal truths about his father, about the kingdom, and about his redemptive plan for mankind. You know, uh, a month or two back, I was with my daughter one evening, and we were talking, or just her and I. And we—it wasn't this exact passage—but she had a lot of questions, like a young, you know, teenager would, growing up in the in the day and age we see. A lot of things that get put before a young girl as to what you need to be about, what needs to motivate you, and how you need to—you you, got the world giving a lot of information to my daughter. And we had a long conversation about this kind of thing, and I said, you know, there's an evil one out there. And he lurks, and he wants to do nothing other than to destroy. And and he wants wants to kill. And he won't relent. Don't kid yourself. If you think he's going to stop, just read the book of Revelation. He's thrown into a pit for a thousand years. He's let back out for just a brief time. And what does he do again? The dragon of old. Right back to the same deceptive lies yet again. He will not end until the Lord returns and throws him into the the lake of fire forever. And then we will be rid of that thing. But for now, we've been given all the tools, the six ingredients to stand firm. Like I told my daughter, you've got to know. You've got to know the world and the devil will never stop at trying to make you conform to their image. But you must be transformed. You must know these things in your heart and in your mind. You must pick these elements up and take action to stand in them. And my hope for Christ Community Church is that we spend our time and our effort where it matters most. If you're in a battle, you must be careful where you focus your attention and your effort. I believe the evil one has littered this world with landmines and traps of all kinds many of which sound good, feel good, look good, have truth mixed into them, and, and sometimes even us as Christians, we'll dive into one of them. And we find, if I, oh, that was a trap, I better get back out of there. Because they lead to destruction and darkness and depravity. We should be careful. I hope these sections of the scriptures give us peace to help us see that, that while the minds of this world are truly growing dark and depraved, and it seems like the enemy is gaining ground at every turn. We can know how to stand firm in the evil day, as Paul called it in, in chapter six of Ephesians. Our families need us to stand firm. Our children and grandchildren need to watch and learn what it means to stand firm. And this very church needs to stand firm. As we close Jude wrote this as he wrote, finished his book, his letter. He said, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, we come before you. We, we live with heavy hearts at times as we look out on our culture. And we don't know where it will all lead, but we want to have that heart like Habakkuk did that can just rest and say, I can stand firm. I can believe in the truths and the realities of what you've taught us through your scriptures. I can hold on and know that you've saved me from my sin and that you are a God of salvation. I can walk righteously knowing that I've been declared righteous and I've been given the spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That I can shod my feet with a great message of good news, of peace between myself and you, Father, and all of us and you, that we are at peace with you, reconciled to you. And Lord, that we can... Have walk in this way and take up your, your word as needed, know it well and be able to pull it out of the sheath. It would not be dusty in there, but it'd be ready to go. And we would be able to strike down the arguments that the world comes at us and upon our children with. Lord, because we live in a day when we need this. We need these things in order to contend and to stand firm. Help us to be the kind of people right here at Christ Community Church that truly want to do what Jude said too, to contend for the faith, the body of doctrine, the truth we've been given. That's what's worth fighting for. To hold on to it because we live in a world of lies. There's two major camps. There's the truth, which is you, and then there's the lies, which is the evil one in the world system. Lord, help us to hold on and contend for the things that are true in your word. Lord, I know there are pitfalls, there are dangers, and there are the road of life is riddled with all kinds of, of mines and traps. And even when we walk into a Christian bookstore, we may be faced with a trap. But help us always to turn back to the active and living word, knowing from where we get our truth, and may we set our mind on it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this. And Lord, I... I can't help but say this one last thing, as Paul concluded his section in Ephesians, there's one element that he sort of said over all of this, do all these things with prayer. That's what we're doing right now, Lord. We're on our knees asking you, Father, please help us with these things. Help us to be a people that are strengthened, endued with your strength, and may we stand in the power of your great might. Father, we ask that you'll do these things now as we walk forth from here, May we walk with a great faith and a newness of heart and mind, spurred on, sharpened in iron, knowing that you have given us all the tools for godliness. Thank you for this word that you've given us and moved through Paul. May we not forget these ingredients and the metaphors you've given to help us remember it. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.